Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Unless you've been asleep nonstop for a few weeks, you know that Jeffrey Epstein is dead. You also know that he died while in federal custody at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York. On a different note, you also know that during a recent weekend, several mass shootings occurred in the U.S., in California, in Ohio, and in Texas. Although, sadly, by the time you hear this episode, those may not be the most recent mass shootings in the U.S. For many people, these incidents raise a number of questions, such as, did Epstein actually die by suicide? And how bad are conditions in jails and prisons, and what can be done to remedy the problems? And what's the link, if any, between mental illness and the risk of committing a mass public shooting? I recently had a chance to discuss such issues as these with two experts. John Pfaff is a law professor at Fordham University with expertise in areas including prisons and criminal law. He's written about mass incarceration, which we discussed in an earlier episode of this podcast. Mike Roque is a sociologist and criminologist with expertise in criminological theory, racial disparities in the criminal justice system, and more. He's also a colleague of mine at Bates College. We recently had a chance to discuss the issues I just mentioned, and more, including at least one presidential candidate. I now share a conversation in this episode, which is titled, Correctional Training. So I feel the need to warn listeners that we might be interrupted at some point because, uh, John, you have contractors at the house. Uh, and as each of you knows, I was going to mock uh, John for being bougie and having contractors to his house. But you reminded me, John, that you live in Brooklyn. Uh, so actually, I should, I should mock you for being a hipster. And so I'm curious, are the contractors there to put in storage space for your vinyl collection? I've 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 aged out of hipster range and have been exiled in the parts of Brooklyn where hipsters don't live. So I I, ah. I have no vinyl. Um, okay. So sadly, I I'm a I'm even a poor excuse for a Brooklynite at this point. Well, you I think you probably are more bougie than uh, at least me, and I think perhaps also Mike. Uh, Mike. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, Mike, do I recall correctly that you are an ice fisherman? Ice ice fisherman. Yes, I'm a I'm a fisherman of all kinds. Ice, water, land. Now, are ice fishermen more or less bougie than fishermen who don't ice fish? Well, so there are several types of ice fishing, and some of them are a little bit more bougie than others. So you can have the, the type of ice fishing where you're in a shack and you're warm and you're not really exposed to the elements, or you can have the type of ice fishing where you're just standing in the middle of a lake drinking beer. And so, you know, there, there's probably some divisions within ice fishing itself. And I tend to the more non-bougie 
kind. Uh, my understanding is the common thread across all forms of ice fishing, though, is drinking. It is, except uh, I grew up with a person, my father, who doesn't drink, and so it, and he doesn't have a shack, and so it's standing on the middle of uh, a frozen lake in uh, freezing temperatures for eight hours without any lubrication, which can be not so much fun. Yeah, see, I, I just go to Whole Foods and skip all of that. Uh. <laughs> well, again, you live in Brooklyn, so what would one, <laughs> what would one expect? So, well, um, I'd love to talk about ice fishing and vinyl all day, but let's uh, uh, get to the topics that we plan to discuss. And I want to start with someone who has uh, been in the news, uh, and that is uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, and I'm going to start with perhaps a boring question. Uh, but given the various uh, conspiracy uh, theories that abound regarding uh, the cause of Epstein's uh, death, would you bet personally uh, on the theory that it was indeed suicide, uh, or would you bet on one of the alternative conspiracy theories being true and why? So for me... Did you just roll your eyes? You just rolled your eyes. Not at you. I rolled my eyes at the state of the world we find ourselves in. Um, but yes, I did. Um, so for me, betting 20 bucks is a big deal. I would easily put a hundred, 200 bucks on this being a suicide, uh, with, with the caveat that of course, this is a bet one could never collect because the problem with conspiracy theories is that the more evidence that the conspiracy theory is wrong, the more that makes conspiracy theorists believe that the cover up is just that much better. Yeah. Right? So even if the proof becomes completely dispositive, he wrote a note and there's video evidence, everything else, I'd never get my 200 bucks back. Right. But, but I'd wager a lot. I mean, every single turn, the thing the conspiracy theory hangs on has been undermined. Right. He's on suicide watch. How did this happen? Well, he wasn't on suicide watch. Why is he taken off suicide watch? That's crazy. Well, that's actually standard procedure because suicide watch is actually quite psychologically harmful, right? But the guards were watching him. Well, they weren't. They're amazing guards. Well, actually, they were overworked and overtimed, and one of them hadn't even been a guard for several years, and one was on her third overtime shift. Right? Like at every single stage, you know, oh, the, the neck bones cracked. Well, the medical examiner says, actually, that's consistent with an old person committing suicide, right? Like at each step, every argument they rested on has been proven false. And it all turns on what, you know, this guy, Ken White, Pope Hat on Twitter, calls like this very accurately, like this Dick Wolfian view of criminal justice that we have, right? That these are just like, you know, our system runs so smoothly and so well organized. And, you know, one, one former U.S. Attorney, assistant U.S. attorney who's now a law professor had an op-ed in the Washington Post calling you know, the Bureau of Prisons is like you know, the elite of the criminal justice system. This is shocking that this happened. And it's just, it's just not true. I mean, the very facility Epstein was in has been, has been critically short-staffed for years, right? And they've been very open about this long before Epstein ever, ever showed up there. The federal system as a whole is, is incredibly short-staffed and has been struggling for years since Trump took over and cut their budget and cut their staffing to, to maintain staffing. Um, you know, Plenty of people describe the MCC as a horrible, vicious place. And while it's true that there haven't been that many suicides at, at the, the Metropolitan Correctional Center where, where Epstein was held, there have been, in the past 20 years, there's been something like four attempts, five attempts, including Epstein and two successes. So that's a fairly high percentage of those who try. I think it's worth noting that you know, most people who end up in the MCC, they've kind of 
always seen this coming, right? Yeah. They've lived these lives of, of violence and trauma and stress where like, is there a chance I'll end up in jail and prison? Yes, right? Like El Chapo certainly did not want to end up with the MCC, but he certainly always saw that as a possibility, right? And for the rich people who don't expect to get hit with those federal charges, they generally make bail, right? So they don't end up in the MCC. So who's Epstein? He's a 60-something, 70-something-year-old man who's facing what will definitely be a life sentence in prison as a sex offender who's the lowest of the lowest in the prison culture and, and certainly going to be exposed to tremendous violence once he goes to prison, right? A man who's never expected this. Well, wait, wait, and, not, and, well, well, well not, not just a sex offender, a sex offender uh, who preyed upon uh, minors, like the right. lowest of the lowest of the lowest. Right, right. It's not shocking to me that, that, in this, that he of all would be like, the one guy who would definitely try to commit suicide. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a horrible thing to say, but it shouldn't, this is not sort of a, a shocking case where we should immediately jump to conspiracy theories going as far as, you no know, Mark Halper argued, what if this is some like face-off situation with a body double? I mean, it was crazy where people ran with this. And to me, it just reflects the general brutality of our prisons, right? They're jails. They're awful, horribly run places that are just pile trauma on top of trauma. So, uh, so, so, yeah. So, so I want to jump in before you take all the arguments, unless you already have. Uh, I want to throw it over to Mike. Uh, Mike, what would your bet be? Uh, did, would, would you agree with Faf that the smarter uh, bet by far is that this was a suicide? And if so, is there anything that you would add by way of reasoning? Or would you disagree with any of uh, Faf's analysis? Well, my president, um, as you know, tweeted um, <laughs> something that was pretty mysterious, seemingly blaming the Clintons. And um I can't imagine a president of the United States would would ever do something that might be <laughs> considered irresponsible. Um, but no, I, uh, I I certainly would not put my money on on any sort of murder. I mean, that would make a, a really interesting novel or or thriller. But um, when I first heard the news, my instinct, my gut instinct, was somebody allowed this to happen. Now, suicide for Epstein is certainly something that is, uh, as, as John mentioned, very understandable, um, given the circumstances and the context. Um, and, you know, without knowing the full details of, of what was going on, you know, thinking that he was on suicide watch, how is this possible? Maybe something happened to grease the wheels to allow him to have the opportunity to, to take that way out. And, and that would be you know, in, in essence, uh, protecting people who might be hurt uh, by his testimony. Um, you know, so that that was my initial uh, instinct. But the more that we learn about the case, um, the more it seems as if, you know, he, I think he was on suicide watch for twice as long as, as is normal, um, actually. Uh, and so as soon as he was off, uh, he was able to, to take his life. So it doesn't seem like there's it, there's no evidence that I've seen that uh, there was any wrongdoing on the part of the of the staff in terms of um, allowing it to happen on purpose. Um, so so yeah, I, I don't know if any of these conspiracy theories uh, have any weight or um, will be long lasting. And in fact, the, the one where he may have been killed, I think, um, should be put to rest by the the autopsy, which um, yeah. I, I believe just came out. Uh, concluding it was a suicide. Yeah. So whatever the weight or or lack thereof that should be given to these conspiracy theories, uh, as Faf noted, they're they're not going to go away. And and as an aside, um, a colleague of uh, Mike's uh, and mine here at Bates College, um, our colleague Stephanie Kelly Romano, 
uh, among other things, uh, studies, uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, so she and her students have plenty of fodder now. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm with you too. I, I don't think that the conspiracy theories here have much weight. Um, before we leave this topic, I do want to talk a bit about the conditions at the prison where Epstein was housed. Um, there was a recent uh, report or interview on NPR's All Things Considered with investigative reporter Daniel Ivory. And I'm, I was really struck by one quote that I want to read. Uh, and the quote is, and this, is, this was um, Ivory talking, quote, what happens when you're working in one of these federal prisons where staffing is short is that you might work an eight-hour shift as a correctional officer. And at the end of your shift, before you can leave, you're told you need to work another eight-hour shift. And if you refuse, you can be written up or you can be fired. So most people don't refuse. So then they work a second consecutive eight-hour shift. They do it. Um, and then you go home and you can only sleep for maybe like five hours. And then you have to go back to work again. That's a, just a brutal example of overwork. I wonder if either of you has a sense of whether that level of overworking of corrections officers is anomalous or is that actually somewhat common? Uh, in in the federal system, I mean, I can't speak to the federal system. In, in many ways, I think we don't want to limit ourselves to the federal system. I, okay. I think staffing is a big issue nationwide. I mean, there's that couple. Was it now last year? I think there's the, the riot, the, the violence at Lee Correctional Facility in South Carolina. I think seven or eight people were murdered uh, when when violence broke out. And the problem was the fact that there were 400 men with two people supervising them. Oh my gosh. Right? Prisons, prisons across the country, and the feds do this explicitly. Uh, in fact, it happened in Epstein's case. Uh, they will take non-correctional officers and make them do CO duty. They'll put librarians in gun towers and, and have nurses walk the floor because they're so short-staffed, everyone has to pick up. In fact, you can't see it in the fed data because the feds train everyone to be a CO, even the librarians and the nurses and the social workers. They count them all as just straight-up COs. Um, you, know, you know, like one of the people guarding Epstein hadn't actually worked as a CEO for like five or six years or something, right? And, and this short staffing, I mean, it, it definitely contributes to, to violence and, and harm and, and death because, you know, the guards, the, the correctional officers are overworked. And I, I think it's important to understand, you know, correctional officer work, it's a horrific job, yeah. right? I mean, there's a joke, it's not even really a joke, right? That inmates and, and correctional officers are both serving time together. It's just one sleeps in home and the other sleeps in the cell. You know, levels of PTSD and suicidal ideation amongst correctional officers are on a par with combat veterans who've seen active duty, right? Who've, seen, who've been shot at and, and, and been in combat, right? It, it's a horrible job. So they're under tremendous emotional strain and, and stress. Their, their budgets are, are low. Um, they're generally understaffed. Um, even as I, I discovered, it's sort of gone unreported and all the talk about how prisons are changing, but as their prison populations have dropped nationwide, um, since 2010, the number of guards has dropped in lockstep with that. And so the prisoner to guard ratio has nationwide hasn't changed at all. Uh, I can't break it out by state, right? But we're not, it's not like our prisons are shrinking and so, are, and so we're sort of improving staffing. We're keeping staffing just as bad. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's a huge recipe for, for, for disaster. What makes it so problematically tricky, though, is that the only way we can actually save money and redirect money and and know, shift this away from prison is by focusing on staffing, right? Two thirds of correctional spending is just wages and benefits, at least two thirds. So to me, there's this really fascinating sort of short run, long run problem. 
that in the long run, the only way we redirect funding away from prisons is to cut staffing. But if we try to save that money up front now, we make our prisons worse places for the people who are there to be. And so the thing, if we improve spending on prisons now to make them less terrible places, that creates a much stronger vested interest to fighting against reform down the line to protect those wages. Right? So how do you decarcerate in a humane way without creating the very political resistance that decarceration you're trying to accomplish is a question for which I have close to no answer. So, Roke, um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on what could be done to, well, I mean, I guess, first of all, do you agree with FAF's analysis that there's this short run, uh, long run problem where in the short run, we could invest more and it would actually improve conditions in prisons. But the long run downside of that is it reinforces the vested interest in uh, maintaining that high level of spending uh, in the system. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at this point, the number, the the amount that we spend on corrections is so mind boggling that if we spend more, then it, it's almost like the proverbial drop in a bucket. I don't know that it will move a needle anywhere in terms of our cultural values or um, making us feel like we need to be more invested uh, in incarceration. Uh, and in terms of, of how we can decarcerate, it seems to me that the the system changes when it's forced to, not when it feels like it uh, should do so because of uh, moral reasons. Um, I you know I worked in the main department of corrections for a little while, and uh, one of the the officials there used to tell me that um, the only movement on the on their side was when they were sued. Uh, in other words, um, when there was a lawsuit. Uh, and their uh, way of doing business was determined um, illegal or unconstitutional, then they had to make changes. Um, and, you know, the main system is, is not, um, not perfect, but it is one of the, the systems, I think, across the country that um, is looked to by other states um, as a little bit of a, um, of a model system just in terms of, you know, just really low numbers of people who are incarcerated, um, a really high level of investment in evidence-based programs. Um, so not just warehousing people. Um, in addition, uh, you might be aware that um, Frontline did a documentary on our, what people call solitary um, confinement. Um, oftentimes it's called um, administrative segregation. Um, and so it was one of the first times that that the public was ap- actually able to see what solitary confinement looks like. Um, and, you know, of course, they hi- the, the, the show highlighted, you know, some um, kind of heinous and uh, more um, shocking uh, moments rather than the, the sort of everyday mundane um, day to day boring parts. Um, but that still moved a national conversation and in fact, it moved the the department to say, okay, this is not really how we want to do business. So let's try to figure out a way to to do it better. And, you know, from the outside looking in, that seems like it's a, it's a wonderful thing. You know, we can look at the, the, the video, we can talk to some people that are on the inside and we can make some changes, but the reality is it's, uh, it's really difficult to make, um, substantive change. I remember being in uh, weekly meetings where we would discuss ideas and then realize that they're not uh, feasible and then try to figure out another way. One of the things that we really wanted to do in solitary confinement was to try to see how we could put some programming behind bars. So these uh, individuals are locked up in a cell for 23 hours a day. 
Um, they're not supposed to have human contact, but can we somehow electronically through technology give them some sort of interaction where nobody is at risk? Um, so that would require something like internet um, and some video, and you know, and then you you're quickly faced with people hacking into the system and doing things that they they shouldn't be doing, and so. Uh, the whole thing is, uh, is is really difficult when you get down to brass tacks. And there's actually something Mike said that I think has a lot of real bearing for actually the 2020 election cycle. She said, you no, know, that the main DOC said they only really change if they got sued, right? And I think one thing that's become, you know, so every Democratic candidate right now is rolling out some sort of criminal justice reform proposal, you know, ranging from a paragraph to 16,000 paragraphs. They're all kind of all over the map. But even even the best one I've seen so far in terms of sort of wonky weedy getting into the weeds, which is Warren's, they're all missing one really big piece, which is this thing called the Prison Litigation Reform Act, right? And so a lot of the, I mean, our prisons are terrible, but they used to be worse. And it was litigation that did play a huge role getting them there. And the PLRA, which is another Clinton-Biden era law that no one talks about because it's boring to talk about, Basically, you know, I get it, right? Everyone wants to talk about the 94 crime bill because they offered states billions, they built prisons. It's easy to understand. It's emotionally impactful. It, it's, it grabs your attention. The PLRA is all about the exhaustion of state administrative remedies before you have standing to sue in state in federal court. And I'm falling asleep just saying that phrase to you, right? It's this hyper-technical rule. About so what does it mean? Sue, so that, what does it mean? So translate it. It means like, so when can a prisoner sue in federal court for saying that his conditions violate the Constitution. Yep. And the PLRA makes it really hard. You have to exhaust every possible state fix before you're allowed to go to the federal fix. And the states drag their feet and create these procedures basically to keep you out of federal court. Um, and I, I, one glaring, sort of the most striking example of how high a bar this is, is that California was under Ninth Circuit control for, has been under Ninth Circuit control for many years because they're at 200% capacity, right? They are double what they could hold. And California basically admitted in court, and the Ninth Circuit held, and I don't think California challenged it, that due to like massive overcrowding and woeful, inadequate medical and mental health care, there was about one preventable death every six days. That's 60 preventable deaths a year at a time when the country was executing about 35 people nationwide. Right? So California alone was basically murdering twice the national execution number just in California, just based on terrible conditions. And the, ninth, the, ninth, the, 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 the inmates won their Supreme Court case with this oversight, but four Supreme Court justices felt that the PLRA still precluded them from being able to sue in federal court because still there were state options available. It wasn't really that terrible. Right? It's this huge bar to get into court um, that's technical and weedy, and, but no one's talking about it. And I'm convinced it's one of the biggest kind of federal evils out there and the kind of thing the president could actually take some role in attacking. You know, could you get it through the Senate? You know, maybe, maybe not. Criminal justice reform at the federal level is a really strange creature these days. Right? I think more can happen than we might expect because there are some Republicans who care a lot. And I don't think Mitch really cares one way or the other. Um, and, and, and to be clear, th- th- this is not something that a president could change through executive order. It is not. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a federal law about when a defendant has access to sue in federal court. Um, there are other things the executive could do to go after conditions. I think there are certainly like DOJ investigations they could launch, but the PLRA would have to be a congressional fix. But, you know, no one's even talking about it. So obviously no one in the Senate is, or is facing any pressure at all. And, and I think Mike's right that oftentimes, you know, in, at least in the short to medium term, change comes from 
a threat to your budget and the embarrassment of a lawsuit. And we've made it really hard to, to do that. As important as it is for the presidential election, uh, I wonder if there's also important uh, issues for, for voters to think about in local uh, elections. And one of the things that struck me uh, after reading your uh, book, uh, John, which I'll, I'll link to uh, on the episode page, is you emphasize the role of local prosecutors in determining who ends up uh, going to jail. Um, but I wonder, and I wonder in part after reading an article in The Economist about uh, the Cook County Sheriff in Illinois, uh, Tom Dart, I wonder if sheriffs uh, have an important role to play. And so, uh, according to The Economist, Tom Dart has taken uh, quite striking steps to improve uh, conditions in his jail. Uh, he said in the, uh, he's quoted in The Economist article as saying, he's been trying to make his jail, quote, the best mental health hospital possible. Uh, he's done away with solitary confinement. Um, and again, Mike, if I hear you, maybe he's overestimating uh, the uh, the uh, uh, inevitable downsides there, but he's gone on to appoint psych psychologists as jail directors and hired medically trained staff in place of some guards. So he's, uh, according to this article, trying to make conditions better in his jail, uh, and he has uh, at any point in time over a thousand uh, inmates. So I wondered, is that just unique to that situation, or uh, am I right to assume that uh, sheriffs have an important role to play? Uh, when they oversee jails. And so it would be an important thing for voters to keep in mind when they are uh, deciding whom to vote for. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right about, about sheriffs. I mean, I don't talk about, about them in my books. I'm focusing exclusively on state level prisons and yeah. that aspect of the problem. And there, sheriffs play a much smaller role. <clears throat> but yeah, you know, I think one of the things people don't appreciate about criminal justice in the U.S. is it is not a system, right? It's this weird patchwork of systems, right? You have city police and county sheriffs and, and county jails. And so, you know, prisons are run by sort of this big state bureaucracy, right? Each county or district has its own jail, and those are run by the sheriff in very localized kinds of ways. And the budget oftentimes comes from that county. It's shaped by that sheriff. Um, and so who your sheriff is matters, I think, tremendously for setting you know, the culture of the, of the jail. You know, I, I think one... You know, one example, and I bring it up just to try to emphasize just sort of the, the nature of the, just the, the persistent dehumanizing brutality of our facilities, right? You know, the sheriff in Milwaukee for many years was David Clark, right? Sort of oh. the Swedish guy uh, who, you know, looked like a, like a, like a, you know, an Applebee's waiter with his police uniform decorated in flair that had no actual significance. Um, he was always running around with Trump. And in his jail, which he ran, now he was off doing other things at this time, but he was the sheriff. I'm sure he played a big role in the culture. There was a man with psychiatric problems who was creating kind of a ruckus. And so the guards locked him in solitary and turned off all the water for seven days until he died of dehydration. Yeah. Right? They murdered him in his cell. Um, and my guess is that does perhaps reflect, you know, the culture of of the sheriff, right? I mean, there are limits to that, right? You know, in, in, in New York City, it, it's not... The sheriff, we don't actually have a sheriff in New York City, but but in, in, in any meaningful sense. But, you know, the Rikers is kind of under the authority of, of the mayor in the, in the short. And Rikers is hellacious despite having a progressive mayor. It's probably one of the worst facilities in anomaly progressive mayor. It's still probably one of the worst facilities in America, right? And so there's no guarantee that having someone who, who is at least nominally progressive will help. But certainly the, the sheriff plays a big role, I think. It can play a big role in setting the, the, the tone of, 
of things. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, at every stage, local elections matter tremendously. Who, you know, the mayor matters for policing, the sheriff matters for the jails, the DA matters for other things, right? These local elections, each of these criminal justice local elections is critically important in its own way. And so, Mike, would you, uh, I guess a two-part question first, would you agree uh, with our premise uh, that uh, the local elections are important, in particular, the, the, the election of a sheriff is important in determining uh, the conditions in jails. But I suppose, just to play devil's advocate, I could imagine one could argue that it's not likely that that's going to actually be an issue that's going to be of great importance to voters. And so uh, hope is, wish as we might, that's probably not going to be high on voters' agendas. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think it, the election is going to matter in terms of who we, we put in charge and people who are responsible and, and want to do the, the hard work. You know, we, we've had some really interesting partnerships here at Bates and Lewiston. Um, just a couple of years ago, a, a senior here did a thesis looking at the Androscoggin County um, Jail um, and uh, it made news around here that she found um, about 70% of the jail inmates have a mental illness, mm-hmm. um, which pointed to uh, major problems, you know, and so um, the, the, the county was open to her having access to all those records. They were also very receptive to the findings, and they said that they wanted to use them um, to create policy. And so that's all real good, and that speaks to the importance of the sheriff and the, and the local officials. The problem is going to be, is a sheriff or uh, a commissioner or anybody who's being elected, are they going to bring out the vote by saying that they want to um, reform their, their jail system? And like you said, it might not move the needle in terms of getting people to the polls. Um, and so if there's a way to sort of being, you know, this sounds bad, but politically astute in terms of making it about a budget or saving money, reducing crowding, so on and so forth, then I think that that is a way that um, that the election might be um, useful in terms of uh, instigating change. I'm not really sure um, that, you know, showing empathy and compassion um, to these hardened criminals is going to be something that the, the public responds to. We have such, a, um, such an interesting narrative uh, in this country um, and the lack of empathy uh, toward people who we perceive to have uh, earned their place, um, as yeah. it were, um, that it makes it difficult. That's another factor, I think. I, although I would, I would say I, I would for um, both for both. I push back, back on this idea of using the voters because that's not a thing, right? You know, the way Larry Krasner got elected was not by suddenly convincing all the gentrified white Philadelphians that they really need to be progressive on criminal justice, right? He got out the the poor black vote that feels the brunt of tough policies mm-hmm. and generally undervoted, right? Turnout for his primary was was like twenty percent higher than expected, right? That was all sort of. Krasner's get out the vote campaign, right? And or just and, 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 and just, to, just to clarify for people, Larry Krasner is recently elected uh, is a recently elected progressive reformer as DA in Philadelphia. Right, probably the most progressive prosecutor in America right now. Certainly, at, at a high more vote. so than Kim Fox, and more so than uh, the one whose name I'm forgetting in uh, uh, Suffolk. Suffolk, uh, yeah, right, yes, Boston. Yeah. I mean, so so Rollins has probably laid out the most progressive policy when it comes to declining charges and sort of like the broad swath of things our office won't decline. I also get the impression from comments being made by Court Watch Boston or Massachusetts that that's not yet actually always happening. Yeah. Right? So there's the, there's the gap between sort of the proposal and sort of ramping it up. So I'll be curious to see where it goes. I feel like 
you know, certainly in terms of sort of national impact on the discussion. So far, Krasner has done more. He's also been in office a whole year longer than Rollins, yeah. right? Rollins is only eight months into the job. She's still yeah. got here a couple, a couple more months to get things up to speed. Um, but no, anyway, I, I think, anyway, anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You, you were telling us how he got elected. Right. And, and so the idea is that, you know, there is this block of voters that tends to view criminals as deserving. They tend to have a lack of empathy in general, and certainly a lack of empathy towards black people, right? And certainly black criminals in particular, right? You know, sort of the, the, the general problem white people have viewing black people as fully human, right? When you add crimes to that, it gets even worse. But they're not the only voters, right? And, and so if you can mobilize the people who feel those tough policies more, you can get different outcomes. And to me, it's not surprising on the, the part I study, which is you know, prosecutors, that the most progressive prosecutors tend to be in cities that don't have suburbs as part of the county, right? Mm-hmm. Philadelphia, St. Louis, the New York City cities, right? Counties, right? Because you don't, you, you serve, you shrink the power of that conservative, wealthier white vote, right? And, you know, a lot of these elections are very strange things, right? They tend to be the decided in the primary, you know, take David Clark from Milwaukee, right? I mean, he was one of Trump's besties for months until he quietly got ditched, but he was a Democrat, right? He, he was a Democrat whose election cycle was, was the non-presidential years, right? He got elected in 2006, 2010, 2014, right? When turnout in Milwaukee was very, very low. So what's interesting is in the, in the presidential years, Milwaukee kept electing an incredibly progressive prosecutor and an incredibly progressive sheriff in the intervening years, right? It's, it's a really remarkable, like, two cities side by side in, in, in Milwaukee. Um, and so it doesn't take a lot to turn these elections, right? You know, when Brooklyn had a massive DA election, it's all decided in the Democratic primary, turnout was like 10%, right? So if you can mobilize, like, a really big block that generally doesn't vote, right, that feels the impact of these tough-on-crime policies, you know, the ability of, of places to, to elect more progressive-minded criminal justice officials, I think, is greater than our standard story tells because the, there's, there's, there's a mobilization option there that a small, really dedicated block can do a tremendous amount in our general indifference to these elections. Mike, I want to begin by talking about an op-ed that you co-authored with, is it Grant Dewey? Yes. So you and Grant Dewey uh, published an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times, if I recall correctly. Yes. Uh, yes. The LA Times. And it's relevant to, um, what sadly it's always relevant uh, because uh, um, high profile mass shootings are seemingly in the news uh, at least every week. Uh, and so, um, I wanted to put this on our agenda because of the weekend we had recently where there was the shooting at the uh, festival in California, shooting in uh, Dayton uh, or Toledo, if you ask uh, our president, uh, and El Paso. Um, and But so your op-ed preceded that. Your op-ed was from 2018, but it's still timely. And your, your headline is, actually, there is a clear link between mass shootings and mental illness. Sure. So uh, just a couple uh, things to preface, you know, we obviously didn't write the the headline. That's um, somebody's job to do that, to try to get some clicks. Um, But the the impetus was that after these mass shootings and and when they are uh, white men, um, the narrative tends to be on the part of some 
uh, that they are mentally ill. And, um, and so that's the explanation. And, you know, in some ways that's really understandable because um, lots of people look at the, the act of just randomly shooting a bunch of people as completely crazy. And the only way that you can sort of um, justify or um, understand how someone could be led to do something like that is if they um, have some sort of a mental illness. Uh, and then at the, uh, at the same time, you have uh, people who rightly point out that uh, mental illness is not necessarily something that is linked to um, violence overall. Um, in fact, um, there's research showing that overall gun violence has um, very little relationship with mental illness. Um, and so there's a, this is really sort of stalemate that, that goes on where people on the one hand say mass shootings have nothing to do with mental illness and people on the other hand say that they do, except typically when they are, are white men. Um, if they are um, perpetrated by people who are not white men, then other explanations tend to yeah. uh, come into play. Um, terrorism, gang-related um, issues, so on and so forth. Um, and so we were trying to and to, to put some data to the the conversation um, and, and give a little context and nuance, which again, the conversation with mass shootings um, is completely devoid of context and, and nuance. You have people screaming from the hills about single issue causes that it's it's only about guns um, in the United States because other countries have mental illness and other countries have poverty or other countries have racism or whatever, and they don't have these mass shootings. Um, and so we were just trying to, to suggest that um, it's not the case that people with mental illness are overall more violent. But uh, if you look at mass public shootings, um, where mental illness is more likely to um, play a role, and mass public shootings are distinguished from mass shootings, um, just in terms of where they, are, where they take place, they're more likely to be in, in uh, places where strangers um, are the, the victims. And so they're the ones that are more newsworthy. They're the ones that, that strike most, most fear. And they also are the ones that, um, that are more related to uh, mental illness. And so, you know, Grant has been working on mass shootings for uh, a long time now. And he, he has collected his own data and he has a database um, that's, that's pretty rigorous where he finds that um, if you look at um, mental illness and mass public shootings, about 60% um, had been diagnosed with a mental disorder or they demonstrated signs of serious mental illness prior to the attack. Now, uh, another caveat is that the, the data is really difficult to come by for these, uh, for these types of classifications. Um, you're oftentimes either relying on news reports or other type of types of reports that can be incomplete. Um, and you're trying to make sense of it. So, um, so there's, it's, it's right for people to have different um, statistics and, and suggest that that um, estimate is a little bit too high. Um, but what we wanted to do is say that, you know, there, there is a high prevalence of mental illness um, in mass public shootings, but also make the point that most people with mental illness will never be violent. Um, so hope, hopefully trying to strike that balance is really difficult because um, the, the stigmatization issue um, is, is a, uh, a real threat to these types of conversations. And so just to make sure that your argument is uh, fully understood by listeners, uh, am I right in assuming that you and Grant uh, are, are uh, reporting evidence that that 60% figure, so 60% of yeah. perpetrators of mass public shootings are either diagnosed with a mental illness or exhibit signs of serious mental, Ill mental illness, that 60% figure is higher than in the population at large, I assume? Yes. Yeah. It's higher than the population um, at large. 
um, by by a, a pretty large uh, measure. I don't have that um, on my. I think it might be in the in the op-ed, but um, it's it's disproportionately high, um, which means that that is it to us. It's something that we should probably um, pay attention to. So would would it? I often like to think in terms of. Uh, conditional probabilities. Um, so putting it in, in these terms, would it be fair to su- summarize your argument in this way? Uh, the probability or, or likelihood that someone uh, is diagnosed with uh, or show signs of serious mental illness are higher given that that person commits a mass shooting than if the person does not? Yes. Yes, but, that would be. But, but um, it's important uh, to attend to the inverse conditional probability uh, as well. That is the probability of committing a mass shooting or even any form of violence, given that one is uh, diagnosed with mental illness or show signs of it, uh, is still extremely low. Yes. That's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Bayes' theorem, but I always yeah. think about that when um, we talk about these things. So that the probability of uh, given that someone is a mass public shooter, the probability of mental illness is high, but most people with mental illness um, will never be violent, uh, let and, alone and, mass, uh, be a perpetrator of a mass shooting, which are still very, very rare relative to other types of um, of violence. Um, and so we're, we're only talking about a handful of, of people um, a year that are um, that, that we would be trying to um, look at with um, respect to mental illness or other types of factors that um, might explain their behavior. And so any sort of prediction um, where we say, well, all people with mental illness need to be treated in X way is, is not likely to be very effective in terms of a, a preventative measure. Well, and, and so I'm, I'm going to invite John back in in a moment. I just want to ask one more question uh, on that note. Um, if it is indeed the case, and it seems to be the case that the probability of committing something as horrific as a mass shooting is extremely low, regardless of whether you uh, have mental illness or not, then what's the policy relevant utility of considering this link that you and Grant are reporting? Like even, even if we accept for sake of argument that, that you've established this link, uh, what's the value in considering it? Well, I think even if something is rare, um, what that does is make it more difficult to demonstrate uh, the efficacy of some sort of policy that targets particular factors, whether it's guns, whether it's um, ammunition, whether it's mental illness. Um, but there are methods we're actually working on uh, with, a, with a couple models that deal with um, extremely rare events like terrorism. Um, and so there, there are methods that are advancing that will allow us to capture um, effects of, of policies in the long run. Um, but I would say that the mental illness um, argument would be useful not just for people who would, you know, the counterfactual, would they have committed a, a mass shooting if they had received treatment or not um, is impossible to, to demonstrate. But if we expand mental health treatment, if we improve it, we're, we've been talking about mental health in, in prisons and jails, which is probably not the the place where we should be offering that sort of treatment. If we were to get serious as a country about offering mental health care, then it would be a, an overall positive um, for everyone, not just people who are be potentially um, mass shooters. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think my, my 
obviously I, I will gladly defer to Mike on all the, the, the numbers here, which are, are fascinating. It's not my, you know, my, it's not the numbers I say, so it's really great to hear about, you know, learn about that. My biggest concern with sort of the, the mental health story is I think people are conflating the two probabilities, right? And so when you say the probability of mental illness given mass shooter is high, I think politicians are hearing the probability of being a mass shooter given mental illness is high. Right. Right. Cuomo, right. Mario Cuomo just no, Mario, just aged myself there. Andrew Cuomo, the, my, my latest Cuomo governor, not the one I had as a kid, <laughs> um, recently proposed putting together some giant like mental health database right, of mm. all mentally ill people in the state so we can keep an eye on this problem, right? Which put aside, though you shouldn't, right, the stigmatizing effect of basically creating a, you know, a, a watch list of the mentally ill, right? At some point, that list is going to get hacked, right? Everything yep. gets hacked. And all of a sudden, yep. everyone's medical history is going to be out there, mental illness history in an at-will yep. employment world, right? It's, it's, it's a really dangerous thing being motivated by, by, a, by a switching of the conditional probabilities, which you know, is one of those like, technical-sounding things that make, leads to a tremendous amount of terrible policy. Um, and so you know, it's, 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 it's useful to understand that you know, these things are not distinct. I mean, I guess one other question I also wonder about is are there other factors we're not paying attention to that are even better predictors still, right? Mm-hmm. That'd be harder to measure, right? So like say misogyny. Right? It seems like a lot of these people have histories of violence against women in their past, like a mm-hmm. really high number. Is that an even better predictor? I mean, because if so, then you know, perhaps we should start emphasizing things that predict this even more. Um, but like Mike said, these are really rare events and you know, rare events have a problem of really grabbing our attention and, and leading to really bad yeah. Bad policy. I, I see it personally. You know, for me, the area where it really grabs me the most emotionally is that you have like school shootings, right? They almost never happen, right? They're they're one of the rarest ways for children to be killed. But now, thanks to state law, you know, my kids have lost. I think it's two or three fire drills that are annually required have now been turned into active shooter drills. Mm-hmm. And there's really nothing more depressing than watching two five-year-old twins in pre-K get into a debate with each other about the difference between shelter in place and um, a lockdown, right? My twins once got into a disagreement. Which one was from when the bad guy was inside the building? Which one was from when the bad guy was outside the building when they were five, mm-hmm. right? And so we don't know. Like, my sense is probably the cumulative trauma of exposing millions and millions and millions of children every year to that level of kind of ambient fear could actually be more overall harmful and traumatic than than the school shootings, which are horrific events, but apply in very small numbers, right? And, and so I get concerned that we, re- we respond to these rare events with, with policies that completely conflate the probabilities and can lead to mental health databases and lockdown children that actually might really be cases where the cure is worse than the disease. So this might seem like uh, an odd connection to make, but here at Bates, uh, we are... Um, SAT optional. We no longer require the submission of standardized tests. And when I first arrived at Bates, I was actually deeply skeptical of that policy because I was convinced that there is a correlation between uh, standardized test performance and uh, GPA in college. Yes, it's not very strong, but it's statistically significant. It's greater than zero. And so why would we as an institution not rely on that information. That's useful information to us. We should consider it in, in, in admissions. And the turning point for me was when I began to think in cost-benefit terms. That is, yes, there is a correlation there, uh, and that means there's an informational benefit to us, but it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost to uh, students who are investing lots of time and energy 
in test prep programs uh, if they come from a family wealthy enough to have access to that. And so it's also increasing uh, inequality uh, among students and their access uh, to the programs that can help them get better test scores. And so I ultimately got to a point where I thought, even if there is a correlation, I worry that the costs of our considering it uh, in policy terms are greater than the benefit. And I guess my, my concern is, even if you and Grant are right, and I think you are, you know, I actually posted to social media, I posted your op-ed, because I think you're probably right that there is this link, but I'm, I'm worried that the cost in terms of stigmatization uh, and the costs, like if, if politicians are going to propose these registries, which I know, Mike, you're not defending, I worry mm-hmm. that those costs um, could be greater than uh, the policy-relevant benefits. And so I guess I'm just opening up for you to tell me if you think I'm wrong about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, part of the onus of, that should be on researchers is not just – there's uh, some interesting debate, at least in my field in, crim- in criminology, um, that I see between people who think that, um, that science is objective and, and, and we should be about, you know, producing knowledge and, and you know, not, you know, uh, putting our spin on it or not, uh, not interpreting it or, um, you know, our values shouldn't have anything to do with it. Um, and, and then on the other hand, people who want to use our research to try to improve the world, um, there was, so there's an interesting sort of, you know, is it, are we scientists or are we social justice warriors? And I remember weighing in, um, on this debate saying that, you know, we could, we could be both by using our, uh, by using research and, um, objective uh, data to try to improve the world. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, I think the researcher should not just be producing the information in terms of it's 60%, but also trying to contextualize and trying to um, share what that actually means and what it doesn't mean. And so part of the reason that I I do engage in in, in op-eds and I'm part of the the SSN, the Scholar Strategy Network, uh, is to try to help translate findings to um, the public. And, And John's book, um, is a, is a wonderful example of that. It's you know it's supremely readable to not just academics, right? To to anybody, um, they understand what he's saying. They understand um, what he's not saying, and he was able to sort of contextualize all of that. And so op eds and other um, ways of of reaching the public are a way to say, okay, it's not just that it's sixty percent, but what is it? What 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 does that mean? What does it not mean? Um, what are the what are the diagnoses that we're most um, seeing? Um, and and trying to um, trying to make sure that the, this is not uh, a message that is um, twisted or misunderstood yeah. as best we can. I think that that's um, also the responsibility of the researcher. And I one of the things that I liked about your op-ed with Grant is that it was clear that you were making a great effort to place your findings in context and. You were explicit in the op-ed. I can't emphasize this enough. You were explicit about uh, the dangers of uh, wrongly stigmatizing the men- uh, the mentally ill, and that uh, you understood that people would be rightly concerned about that as a potential uh, downside of of, of uh, thinking about the potential link between mental illness uh, and and mass shootings. And when I shared it on social media, that was because you were so careful. That was why I urged people not to comment until they'd read the entire op-ed. But, right. my, my, but my worry is, especially in this um, age of Twitter, despite all of that emphasis, people don't read the entirety. They don't actually uh, pay enough attention to those caveats and uh, to, the, to the context. But um, there's only so much you can do as an author, I suppose. Yeah, right. 
people tend to, especially now in the age of social media, and this, this is another piece that I um, recently wrote, um, we enjoy that. I think we enjoy that sort of uh, visceral reaction of, of outrage when we, we see something that we um, disagree with. Uh, and, and, you know, seeing a headline that is inflammatory, uh, I guess it, maybe it was a bit inflammatory, um, can lead one to have those sort of emotional reactions. And uh, it sort of feels good to, um, to react that way. Um, when it, I, I don't really think it helps the the conversation um, very much. And you know, to answer your question a little bit more directly, the previous one, um, even if the uh, the potential is there for a finding to be uh, misconstrued or misused, I, I would not recommend us to uh, not have the accurate information um, or or to produce accurate information. You know, one of the other things that I'm that I am struck by is one of the arguments against the idea that mental illness has something to do with mass shootings is this really great paper that came out a couple of years ago showing um, very little relationship between mental illness and gun violence. Now, gun violence is a different animal than, uh, than mass shootings, right? Um, there are certain uh, similarities, of course, but when you're talking about gun violence, suicide, um, and, and just everyday um, gun we're talking about thousands and thousands of more um, cases and people um, and so these are just, we're comparing apples um, to oranges. And so stay tuned for another piece that might be coming out in a paper, uh, in the newspaper, talking about the need to be comparing apples to apples when we're having these types of discussions. Well, you, uh, one other argument that I've heard offered uh, in this context uh, often goes um, uh, a little something like this. Um, I have depression and I haven't shot anyone uh, therefore, there's no link between mental illness uh, and uh, mass shootings. Would right. either of you care to re- uh, give me a reaction to that style of argument? And I would say I'm a white man and I've never committed a mass public shooting, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a correlation there. Oh, and and, and I think, I, I don't know if it was uh, you, Mike, or you, John, but I thought one of you on social media also noted that that style of argument could be employed by the NRA. That is, I'm a, I'm a gun owner. And I've not uh, c- uh, committed a mass shooting, so there's no link between guns and, and mass shootings. Right. Absolutely. So Bernie Sanders just released uh, a criminal justice uh, plan, and I know I've got some uh, advanced knowledge uh, uh, John, you posted about it on social media. Uh, you didn't seem too impressed. Um, I wonder if you could briefly give us a sense or maybe just one example of one concern you have with uh, Bernie Sanders' plan, and then uh, I'm going to uh, give the final question to Mike. Yeah, and could you tell us, John, wh- why do you hate Bernie? <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those wondering about that, it was because I have been criticized now Warren, Sanders, Biden, and Harris the Bernie criticism set my Twitter mentions on fire more than anyone else in both directions. His defenders were the angriest people I've ever seen on Twitter and his detractors were the angriest people I've seen on Twitter. I got snared in these ad hominem diatribes against each other. I was tagged and couldn't escape and it was tedious. I guess I'll say my criticism, I had issues with Sanders in that he proposes fixing, he basically lays out a 50 year, $20 trillion plan, right? Which is laudable, but, unrealistic. But I would say more. I wrestle with what 
any of these plans by any of these people are going to do for, for two big reasons. And of which most, Warren being the best example of not making this mistake, but they're generally very cagey about this. There's very little the feds can do to shape criminal justice outcomes at the state and local level. And to put the feds in perspective, they hold about 12% of all prisoners and far smaller fractions of jail people, arrests, uh, probation, parole. Right? They're a relatively minor player. They can't tell the states what to do. They cannot abolish the death penalty at the state level. They cannot tell states to stop using private prisons, even though Sanders actually introduced a law doing just that. Uh, they cannot tell the states how to criminalize things. They cannot tell the police how to make arrests absent a constitutional violation that brings in the DOJ, right? There, there are powers, and there, there's some narrow exceptions, but as a general matter, they cannot tell the states what to do and the cities what to do. All they can use as a general matter is funding incentives. If you do this, we'll offer you this much money. If you don't do this, we'll take this much money away. But the catch is, is that the DOJ's entire budget is about $30 billion for everything the DOJ does. The state and local governments spend about $200 billion on criminal justice between police, jails, prisons, everything. Right? So the size of these grants are incredibly small. And more often than not, the states just don't care. Right? The feds say, adopt our sex offender law or we're going to take away funding. And over half of all the states said, fine, take it away. But they offered $10 billion in the 94 Crime Act to build out prisons, and states only claimed $3 billion of it. They left $7 billion free dollars sitting on the table, and most said, we don't care about this program at all. And so what the feds can do directly at the level that matters is really, really hard. And most of what they're putting forth is not possible or it's not going to do much unless they really think hard and creatively about the funding. And the funding is hard. It's not an easy thing to do. So is your advice then to uh, voters who care about criminal justice reform to pay more attention to state and local elections? Far, far more. Yeah, that's really where everything is taking place. And Mike, what is uh, your advice to uh, voters who care about, uh, or activists more generally, who care about criminal justice reform? Yeah, I would say so local elections matter, but also pay attention not just to what the people who are trying to be elected or are in office are saying, but who they appoint. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, interesting movement that's, that's taken place in the main Department of Corrections uh, in the last couple of years. We have a new governor, we have a new uh, warden, um, a completely different mindset in terms of how the system is going to be run. Um, and if that's something that you think has the potential to make uh, important changes, then those types of, um, of moves um, and appointments matter a great deal. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank John Pfaff and Mike Roke for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on them and the topics we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can, if you're a Twitter user, mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or if you prefer, you can go to iTunes or whatever Apple calls it now and post a review. Either way, the feedback is appreciated. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.